This podcast is supported by the Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai, one of America's leading medical research schools. How will advances in artificial intelligence transform medical research and medical care? To find out, we invite you to read a special supplement to Science Magazine prepared by Icon Mount Sinai in partnership with Science. Just visit our website at science.org and search for Frontiers of Medical Research Artificial Intelligence. On May 1st and May 2nd, ICON, Mount Sinai, and the New York Academy of Sciences will be convening a major symposium in New York City on the new wave of AI in healthcare. For more information and to register, please visit events.nyas.org slash AI health. That's events.nyas.org slash AI health. The ICON School of Medicine at Mount Sinai. We find a way. You listen to us to hear about new discoveries in science. But did you know we're a part of the American Association for the Advancement of Science? AAAS is a nonprofit publisher and a science society. When you join AAAS, you help support our mission to advance science for the benefit of all. Become a AAAS member at the silver level or above to receive a year's subscription to science and an exclusive gift. Join today by visiting AAAS.org slash join. That's A-A-A-S dot O-R-G slash join. Welcome to the Science Podcast for April 19th, 2019. I'm Sarah Crespi. This week and next week, Megan and I will be away traveling in China. So for this show, we're featuring some interviews we did at the AAAS annual meeting this year. First up, we have Christina Warner. She discusses using the analysis of dental plaque to understand the history of milk consumption. When and where did humans start drinking dairy? And no, your genes don't have all the answers. Megan Cantwell talks with Cheryl Kirschenbaum about the public's perception of how much food they waste and how understanding that perception could be important for waste reduction. I'm here at the AAAS annual meeting. This is Sarah Crespi, by the way. We're in Washington, D.C., and I have Christina Warner with me. You may remember her from a recent episode in January where we talked about lapis lazuli that was found in the dental calculus on the teeth of a skeleton that turned out to show that it was someone who was an artist during her life. Hi, Christina. Hi. <laughs> so I just went to your presentation here at the annual meeting, and it was it was such a fun trip through all the different amazing things happening with analysis of biomolecules in archaeology. So we do have to pick one or two things to hone in on here. We can't just go through the whole tour. It was about a 30-minute talk, so we're going to stick to um, one or two. And can we start with this term I'd never heard before your talk, which is dairying. So what is dairying? So dairying is, it's a practice of milking and turning those that milk into milk products or dairy products. And this is something that people learned how to do. And there is a history of dairying that's kind of been worked out. So can you kind of talk about the broad strokes of what we understand? And then we'll, we'll get into the research questions that are, are current right now. Sure. The, the history of dairying is really interesting because it's in some ways, it kind of tracks the history of science. Initially, it was it was kind of thought, oh, well, dairy is like this incredibly natural food and everyone around the world can, can consume milk products. And then in the 1960s, it was realized that there was this thing called lactose intolerance and that a lot of people around the world were lactose intolerant. And then the genes underlying the ability to digest milk were discovered. And we realized actually the natural state of humans is to be lactose intolerant as adults. And actually it's a derived trait that some of us can digest dairy. And then it was thought, well, this must have occurred with the 
the Neolithic Revolution, and we, then we found out, well, daring started then, but adaptations came later. And so there's been all this kind of mystery about the origins of milk and dairying. So it's been fascinating to kind of watch as I was growing up, learning about all of these things, and then becoming more involved in it as I became older, and trying to understand, well, what do we actually know about daring? When did it really start? How did it spread around the world? How are different cultures connected? And how can we use these amazing new technologies that have become available to actually track it directly in the past? So if I were to look at a map showing the spread of dairying over time, what can we say right now about where it originated and where it went after that? I think a lot of people, when they think of dairy, they think of Europe. But actually, dairy is practiced in many places. It's, it's practiced throughout many parts of Africa. It's practiced throughout the Near East. It's practiced throughout Central and Inner Asia as well. So dairying actually spans much of Eurasia and Africa. Do we know where the first person drank the first glass of milk or ate the first piece of cheese? We don't know exactly. The earliest evidence that we have to date for dairying comes from the Near East. We can't place it precisely, but around Anatolia and the Levant, somewhere in there, probably having to do with cattle, sheep, or goat. That seems to be where it originates around 7,000 BC. And the earliest evidence that exists for that comes from dairy fats that have been preserved in pottery. Now, that's really useful to use dairy fats to track pottery through space and time. One of the troubles, though, is that it can be really hard to tell what species the dairy fat is coming from. Additionally, there's many places, like in Central and Inner Asia, where there's very little pottery to study because it just wasn't included in burials, for example. There, using proteomics can be really helpful, and we can apply that to dental calculus to track milk proteins through time. And the advantage of proteins is in addition to being able to say that there is milk present, we can actually identify the species as well. Let's hone in on Mongolia, which is an area that you mentioned in your talk as having an extensive amount of daring. They use seven different animals to get milk from right now? That's correct. So in Mo Mongolians um, milk more species of animals than anywhere else. So seven species are dairied and different places in Mongolia, depending on the local environment. So that ranges from in the south, that includes things like camels. And then as you go further north, you find horses, cattle, sheep, goats. Further north, you get yaks and eventually reindeer. What do we know about the history of dairying in this area? And what, what kind of evidence are we getting from, say, dental calculus or older vessels that we talked about before? One of the things that's very difficult about Mongolian archaeology is that there are very few habitation sites. So classically, what archaeologists love to study more than anything else is garbage pits because they're very rich and they contain so much information about how we live and what we do. In Mongolia, however, because people have been mobile for so long, either as hunter-gatherers or later as pastoralists, you don't get this accumulation of sites that is necessary to, to build up a stratigraphy to be able to then preserve these remains. So we have very few habitations. We know of very few middens in Mongolia. And actually, because of wind and other forces, there's very little archaeology beyond things like burial mounds. So Mongolia is an unusual place where there's very few residential habitation sites, which is what usually archaeological sites are dominated by, and lots and lots of mortuary sites, which is usually in other places where we don't know where those are. So there we're forced to be really creative about the kinds of techniques that we use to look at questions like subsistence and economy in the past. Also, one of the kind of quirks of Mongolian archaeology is that people in the past during the Bronze Age, which is the critical period for understanding the origins of daring, didn't put pots in their burials. So the burials are very simple in the sense that they have a simple skeleton laid out. There's an elaborate mortuary structure on top of it. And sometimes there are animal offerings, but they're often very, very fragmentary. So 
when we're trying to reconstruct whether or not these populations were pastoralist or whether they were daring, we have very, very little things to test. But it turns out calculus is a really rich substrate for that. And so we've been able to use proteomics to identify milk proteins in the dental calculus of these individuals and then get this amazing resolution at an individual level of who was consuming dairy products. When you say individual resolution, you're talking about looking at the people and maybe showing what kind of milk they were consuming and, and when that was? That's right. So um, in other places, for example, if you're working with pottery, you can say that this community produced dairy products or used dairy in some way or maybe a household. But you never know, for example, what the age of that person was. So it could have been for children or adults. That's actually quite different in terms of the adaptations that are necessary for that. When we use dental calculus, you know that individual, that person consume dairy themselves. And because calculus largely forms after puberty with the onset of adulthood, we can more securely associate it with adult consumption of milk and dairy products. So what other questions are you trying to answer by looking at dairying in Mongolia? One of the things that I'm really interested in is understanding is how how did humans first come to develop dairy as a food. There's a lot of adaptations that need to be put in place in order to make that work. I mean, dairy is a really rich source of nutrients. And if you're living in a place like the steppe, it's very, very important. The steppe is dominated by grasses. We cannot eat grasses. We can't utilize those landscapes ourselves. But if you have ruminants that can, they convert all of this cellulose-rich grass into foods that then we can survive on. This is really important. And other animals, for example, camels also have the additional property of being able to tolerate really salty or brackish water. And that allows people to move into places that might otherwise be inaccessible because now they have a kind of mobile desalinization plant. So dairy is this incredibly adaptive strategy for certain landscapes. So we're trying to figure out what were the kind of components that had to come together to make this work. I think it's been clear from ancient DNA work that's been done lately that we have kind of interesting 4,000-year gap between when daring first begins and when we see the first genetic evidence of lactase persistence. So for the first 4,000 years in Europe and the Near East, people were daring but had no genetic capacity to digest the milk. What we see in Mongolia is people there have been daring for at least 3,000 years and people still don't have any genetic adaptations to digest the milk. And that to me is really fascinating because it seems to suggest that this lactase persistence is irrelevant for the early history of dairying. So if that's so, how did people adapt to be able to consume milk? What are the other mechanisms involved? So there's two main areas that we're exploring. One is through culinary adaptations, so the intentional manipulation of bacteria through fermentation to produce sort of like yogurts and cheeses. They reduce the lactose content. And so if you can control microbes, you can access milk by converting it into dairy products, which is really fascinating if you think about it, because this would have been done in prehistory history before people had any concept that bacteria existed. These are invisible to them, and yet they're manipulating and creating um, these really complex foods through controlled fermentation. The other, which is also not very well understood, is the microbiome. What role does the gut microbiome play in digesting these dairy products, and do different communities of bacteria promote easier or better digestion of dairy products? And I think that's that's potentially going to reveal a lot. We have a project ongoing now where we're going to be studying this in Mongolia, looking at mobile pastoralists and also people who live in the city and trying to understand how their gut microbiome might be adaptive for these sorts of diets. And is that something you're also going to be able to access from history? So from some of the kinds of biomolecules that you study, are you going to be able to look back at time and the microbiomes of people that are no longer around? 
So this is a great question. So I, I do have a project in my lab working on paleofeces, which um, I know some people might think sounds awesome. <laughs> awesome. I think it's awesome. Actually, it's fascinating because you can learn so much from the gut microbiome. The challenge, though, that we have there is that, as you might imagine, feces do not preserve under most circumstances. So we tend to find them in rather unusual cases where either it's very cold or for some reason it's very, very dry. And so it's a bit rare, but when we do find ones that are well-preserved, we can learn an awful lot from that. So we are trying to build up an understanding of how to analyze this material and trying to come up with better predictive models of where we can find it. One of the big problems we actually have right now, which I have a student working on, is there's actually quite a lot of paleofeces in the archaeological record. However, we are finding that most of it is ancient dog poop. So we're, we're actually developing uh, software tools that allow us to rapidly screen this because probably about 90% of the, the paleofeces we've analyzed so far is actually dog poop, ancient dog poop, spanning from the Neolithic all the way up to the 19th century. But yeah, so we're now that we can distinguish it, uh, we're looking for more um, human feces. All right, we've been friends forever, and you can tell from the paleo record there. <laughs> all right, Christina, thank you so much. Thank you so much. Christina Warner is a professor in the Department of Archaeogenetics at the Max Planck Institute for the Science of Human History. Stay tuned for Megan Cantwell's interview with Cheryl Kirschenbaum about food waste from the 2019 AAAS annual meeting. This week's episode is brought to you in part by Columbia University. Can you bring everything the world has shown you to a career in medicine? Can you learn from the best at world-class hospitals and clinics? Can you realize a new career out of newfound passions? You can at Columbia University School of General Studies post-bac pre-med program. The oldest and largest program of its kind, Columbia post-bac pre-med program is known for its rigorous approach to medical school preparation. You'll receive an Ivy League education delivered by a world-renowned faculty experienced in teaching post-bac non-traditional and pre-med students. Post-bac students are both recent college graduates and experienced professionals with backgrounds unrelated to healthcare. The program's small size makes for a supportive and dynamic learning environment. Dedicated academic and personal advisors, research-backed support programs, and an inclusive student community will help guide you every step of the way. And up to 90% of graduates are admitted upon first application to American medical schools. To realize your future in medicine, visit gs.columbia.edu slash premed. That's gs.columbia.edu slash premed. Fall regular decision application deadline is June 15th, so apply today. This week's episode is also brought to you in part by Magellan TV. Magellan TV is a new type of documentary streaming provider determined to bring you the finest documentaries from around the globe. Magellan TV is built by documentary filmmakers, and new programs are added on a weekly basis. They offer documentary movies, series, and exclusive playlists across a wide variety of genres. They have the deepest collection of high-quality science programs available anywhere. We're talking science, nature, biology, space, history, physics, engineering, evolution, health, did I say biology? And so many more. They even have science playlists curated specifically for enthusiasts. Watch anytime, anywhere on your TV, laptop, or your mobile device right next to me on the Metro. 
Enjoy a wide selection of programs available in 4K without additional cost. And you can stream them without interruption. Magellan TV is now compatible with Roku, iOS, and Android with the ability to cast to most popular streaming devices. So whether you want to look deep under the sea or deep into space, please check out Magellan TV today. Start your exclusive two-month free trial at MagellanTV.com slash Science Magazine. That's MagellanTV.com slash Science Magazine. I'm here at AAAS annual meeting with Cheryl Kirschenbaum, a co-director of the Michigan State University Food Literacy and Engagement Poll and host of Serving Up Science, a podcast from WKAR. And she gave a talk today on the public's attitude toward food waste and sustainability, which was based on the Michigan State University Food Literacy and Engagement Poll, which asks 2,000 U.S. adults around the country about food-related topics. Thanks so much for speaking with me, Cheryl. Thank you so much for having me, Megan. Specifically in the poll, you asked how much food waste the U.S. generates to this group of people. What were the results of that? Were they pretty accurate in gauging how much food waste we generate? Yeah, and I should preface this by saying each wave of the poll, because it's a really rich data set, we have one general food literacy question. So because this particular survey took a closer look at food waste, we asked one question about how much food people think gets wasted annually in the U.S. because it costs us about $218 billion a year or $1,800 on average per household of four. It's a huge issue. 41% of our respondents got that correct in choosing the range 30 to 51%. It's not supposed to be kind of a gotcha quiz, but that gives us a sense of where people are on this issue. In terms of food waste, how much of the burden of food that is wasted falls on the consumer side, what we're wasting versus retail or agriculture? In the U.S., we waste a lot of food in our own households. We put it in the back of the fridge. It goes bad. We forget about it. If you look to the developing world, the chain that the food travels from the farm to the plate is not quite as tight. So we lose a lot more on the way, on the journey. And I'd also add that when people think about food waste, it's not a topic by itself. It shouldn't be siloed because all the food we waste also wastes a tremendous amount of water, energy, and produces a ton of greenhouse gas emissions. So as much as this is a food waste problem, this is a climate issue. And it's also very much a social issue because we're wasting all of this food at the same time. We have a lot of people that are food insecure. Based on this survey, did a lot of people seem receptive that they are trying to decrease their food waste? Well, and that's where I get to share some optimistic news. So our results found that 88% of Americans say they are trying to reduce their food waste at home. 88%, if you know polling at all, is extremely high. And this is a very large survey. It's over 2,000 Americans age 18 and over, and it's weighted to reflect U.S. census demographics. So we feel like our confidence in the results are good. Among the 12% who said that they're not taking steps to reduce food waste at home, one-third of those just said they don't produce food waste. So, of course, our behavior isn't always necessarily reflected in how we self-report. But at the same time, this is good news. This is encouraging. What ways are they trying to do that? I think one, just being more mindful, thinking before we go to the market about what we need, what we're going to be using, not letting food spoil, but if you have excess food, even sharing it or finding other ways to use it because food waste itself can go to other uses. I mean, Michigan State, we have an anaerobic digester, which uses that food waste, but there are several kind of pieces to this, but also maybe encouraging your market to sell things that don't look absolutely perfect. We tend to produce foods that look really great, but not necessarily 
are as great in terms of nutrition and health and uh, and we just want things to look a certain way and that's not necessary. And I'll just finally add something really important that I think a lot of people aren't aware of. Sell by, best by, use by dates are often quite arbitrary. They don't necessarily reflect food safety at the time and they're mainly there for consumers to feel better about how long they can keep a product. So just keep that in mind the next time you're ready to toss a bag of something because it's a day past the, the sell by date. I guess there's no way to know exactly when the date is. Since that date's arbitrary, how far past can you go? It depends on the food. So for some foods that are really perishable, you want to be careful. If something smells funny, it looks funny, don't eat it. But for a lot of these products, it is pretty arbitrary and things can go well past their, especially when it's a sell-by date. Unfortunately, markets tend to know that consumers are less interested to buy things when the date is close to the time of purchase. So we have supermarkets throwing perfectly good food away in large copious amounts before it even reaches a sell-by date right now. And so that's a really, that's a point of waste that I think we can do a lot to reduce at this point. What regulatory agency controls or manages that kind of sell-by date and how would that How would we be able to change that? Well, there are some rules in place, but some of it is just product dependent. There's not really a reason those numbers need to be there, but we see that with labeling. So the previous wave of the poll was very focused on what we're looking for in food labels itself. And of course, consumers are looking for that, but we're looking for a lot of things we don't need information about. The top two terms that people want to see most on their food labels, I believe, I'm remembering correctly, this was our last wave, were clean and natural. Both of those terms are absolutely meaningless. Clean doesn't mean anything really. Arsenic occurs naturally, but we're not exactly, it's not good for us to go try to eat a bunch of it. It's not necessary information. It's just terms that we're being trained culturally to look for. And based on the survey, did you see any differences in how different demographics approach food waste, think about food waste? So we can break down the poll data by so many different slices because it is such a large sample size. And we look at age, income, education, whether or not people have children, region, all of these many, many different factors. We did see some significant differences based on age. So older Americans are paying a little bit more attention to tackling food waste, although I believe 55 and over, it was 94% of people saying they're actively trying to reduce food waste at home, but at the same time, 81% of those under 30. So that's encouraging. Another interesting thing you mentioned was the difference between people who have kids and their attitudes towards food waste or sustainability in general. Could you talk a little bit about that? I've been doing polling for a while, since 2011, not always with Michigan State, but something that comes up in polling is that It seems that people who have children seem a lot more interested in taking steps to reduce their environmental impact. So we see them more likely to adopt solar panels on their house, more likely to drive a car that doesn't use as much gas per gallon, more likely to have efficient light bulbs, all of these behaviors. So what we saw with the poll results as well was that demographic is one of the most likely groups to be addressing food waste at home and actively taking steps. And we ask people what they're willing to do. It might be consuming food before it spoils. It's it's many things, but it seems that people who have children seem possibly more invested in the future and interested to reduce their environmental impact. In addition to this survey, you also conduct roundtable conversations with communities about what their concerns are about food. What have you found is the greatest concern from these public conversations? There's a lot of confusion out there, and it's symptomatic of a greater problem, which is it's really hard to know who to trust for accurate information that's evidence-based when it comes to science issues. So we see this with vaccination. 
We see this even with evolution. We see this with climate change. And we definitely see this with food. Anyone can start a website and call themselves an expert. And if you're a celebrity or if you're famous or have a big audience, you're going to reach generally a lot more people than I will. And so because of that, I mean, we see all these pop fad diets all the time popping up. Now there's a carnivore diet where they're saying people should only eat meat that's getting very popular. Not a good idea for your health. But there's a lot of confusion over what we should and shouldn't be doing, health, nutrition, somewhat into sustainability, um, not based on research. And we're seeing that reflected in these community conversations that we do have. On the consumer public side, what have you learned is the biggest misconception you would say about food waste or just agriculture, food production in general? There are so many. But since we're talking food waste, I think again, returning to how we started this conversation, there's so much in the media and in the policy sphere right now that addresses climate change. And I think a lot of people don't realize that food waste isn't independent of that. And we're looking for these grand solutions through new innovations. Let's invent something. Let's do some geoengineering. When in reality, if we get a better handle on food waste, we will reduce emissions significantly now, and we can do that right now. And so I'm optimistic we're moving in that direction, and I think it would move the needle ultimately to help us tackle climate change. Yeah, you've said repeatedly that you are optimistic about us tackling this issue. In recent times, what are advances or steps forward that contribute to this optimism? Well, I think there's a lot more attention on food waste recently. And it seems to be a priority in grant giving from a lot of food foundations. It's coming up in policy discussions at many of the conferences I go to a lot more than it used to. And so I think that very slowly we're making strides in the right direction. And a lot of things are happening at the community level, in schools, even at restaurants and hotel chains to reduce the amount of food we just toss. All right. Thank you so much, Cheryl. Thank you so much for having me here. And that concludes this edition of the Science Podcast. If you have any comments or suggestions for the show, write to us at sciencepodcast at aaas.org. We are in China this week and next, and we'll be back the first week of May. You can subscribe to the show on iTunes, Stitcher, many other places, or you can listen on the Science website. There you'll also find links to the research and news discussed in the episode. That's sciencemag.org slash podcast. The show was produced by Sarah Crespi and Megan Cantwell and edited by Podigy. Jeffrey Cook composed the music. On behalf of Science and his publisher, AAAS, thanks for joining us. You listen to us to hear about new discoveries in science, but did you know we're a part of the American Association for the Advancement of Science? AAAS is a nonprofit publisher and a science society. When you join AAAS, you help support our mission to advance science for the benefit of all. Become a AAAS member at the silver level or above to receive a year's subscription to science and an exclusive gift. Join today by visiting AAAS.org join. That's A-A-A-S.org join. This week's episode is brought to you in part by Science Careers. Looking for some career advice? Wondering how to get ahead or how to strike a better work-life balance? Visit our site to read how others are doing it. Use our individual development plan tool, access topic-specific article collections, or search for an exciting new job. Science Careers, produced by Science and AAAS, is a free website full of resources to help get the most out of your career. Visit sciencecareers.org today to get started.